0: Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 88. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to chat with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Gretel Von Bargen. Gretel is a biology teacher at Skyline High School in Sammamish, Washington. Gretel has been teaching at Skyline since 2002, where she teaches IB Biology 1 and IB Biology 2. Throughout her career, Gretel has been recognized for her excellence in teaching through many awards and distinctions. These include Earning and renewing her national board certification, being a 2010 recipient of the Presidential Scholars Teacher Recognition Award, and in 2013 being selected as the Washington State winner of the Presidential Award for Excellence in Mathematics and Science Teaching. Gretel was also a 2017-2018 Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow, spending the year in Washington, D.C., focusing on federal-level science education programs. You can follow Gretel on Twitter at vb underscore IB bio or on instagram at ibbio teacher welcome gretel hi Ern. thanks for having me Nice to talk to you. I've been following you on uh, on social media, and um, I've seen your stuff for a while. And then last spring, I realized that you were an Einstein fellow with one of the teachers I work with. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, "Oh, he knows her. I should talk to him." And and I bet you she'd be great for the podcast. So it it took about a took about six months for us to to line up schedules. And and when you weren't busy and I wasn't busy, but I'm I'm so happy we finally got a chance to sit down and talk. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, um, so you we're in the midst of the winter. Um, how how is the winter in the Pacific Northwest this year? Is it is it a rough one so far? Or?
1: Well, we lost three days last week to snow with two late starts, and so that means now we're going into school into the third
0: week of June. Yeah, I think we are. We are currently at the same spot. We we will end the the third week in June on a Friday if we have no more snow days. Um, yes, <laughs> which, we have to go into the following week, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, we haven't rolled over yet, but um, yeah, and I and they just uh, I just got the AP Biology reader schedule that can't, comes out, and I I am like literally leaving the second week and coming back the third week, depending on how my schedule of travel will run, I'll either come back for the last two days of school, um, or the last one day of school, depending on uh, on how travel works out uh, this this upcoming year. So it's always a always an interesting adventure for us that start a little bit later and end a little bit later uh, compared to those in the South. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. I teach a summer ecology course and we were planning to be gone to the Olympic National Park the week. Now that we've run into it, I might have
0: to reschedule
1: a whole slew of logistics to get 20 kids out to the National Park. So we're going to try to make it work still.
0: Yeah, I have a I have a colleague who does a, a summer research program and has a has a similar issue a couple of years ago when we had a lot of snow days they were like when does this program start and uh, fundamentally you start like running out of summer um if you go Correct. too late yeah um, right. and running into other programs so yeah interesting uh interesting dilemma but um but hopefully it's you never know i feel like i never have any sense of how it's going to go we we were hit really hard in december this year and and that's unusual i like i don't remember missing a lot of december days uh in the past couple of years so um hopefully hopefully we have a calm rest of the winter probably- you know one of
1: the things i like about teaching is that you kind of do never know and you <laughs> have to be able to go on the fly and it's like oh well, i guess we're not having school Got to adjust.
0: Out. Yeah, flexibility is is definitely a, <laughs> it's a virtue, even if I feel like we don't always express it in the most positive ways. Um, I'm sure your colleagues <laughs> the same way. Oh, no, it's, the sky is falling, but we always manage to yeah. make it work. Uh, yeah. so that's great. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we have a lot of, I have a lot of potential avenues uh, that we could go down. As I said, I, you, we, you know, a colleague of mine who I've actually been working with a lot closer this year. And, and there's a few other things that are there. But um, let me get into the question I like to start with everybody, which is uh, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom?
1: You know, being a science teacher was the best decision I've ever made. I was not initially on a path to be a science teacher when I was in high school. I thought I'd be a physician. And then when I was in college, I changed my path to veterinary medicine, and I was kind of headstrong on being a vet. I worked at a vet, and I had taken all the pre vet classes, and I actually applied to vet school and was going to be moving to Boston to go to for vet school. And then the summer um, after I graduated with my undergrad, I was working as a park ranger in Yosemite National Park, and I decided really almost an epiphany i woke up again and was like uh-oh i don't want to be a vet <laughs> and then but i didn't know what i wanted to do and so i was um had to make the tough decision to kind of forgo that path knowing it wasn't the right one but not sure not sure what 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 the right path would be and um being quite analytical i created a bunch of spreadsheets <laughs> with pros and cons of different career paths, and I took many career interest inventory surveys, and three things always showed up at the top of those interest inventories. One was uh, law, another was project management, and the third was teaching. And so for me, I was like, well, one of these seems a lot more fun than the others, and so that's when I decided to uh, go and get my master's in science teaching, and that has been the path that I've been on ever since. And it's been a really fortuitous, lucky, lucky pack.
0: I'm curious what it was about like veterinary medicine. Was it literally just the fact that you had the, the downtime to, to sort of think and reflect before embarking in there? Or were there a series of things that had made you sort of, you know, maybe lose passion? Or was it, you know, what was it that sort of led you to having that epiphany? Do you have any any sense of what it was?
1: I think it was taking the blinders off all through undergrad. I'd been so dead focused and not hadn't really taken time to look around me at other opportunities. And so, after I had graduated and I was doing other work at the park and had worked some other uh, jobs, and I realized that um, you know, maybe I just hadn't hadn't been aware of other options. I'd been so dead focused on this one path. Veterinary medicine's a challenging path in terms of admission to vet schools and everything, and so I just hadn't hadn't seen or thought of other options. And when I had the time to do that, I think I realized, like, oh, there's other things and that I actually might enjoy more. <laughs> and and I'm really thankful for that for that time and that thought.
0: Yeah, I mean, getting into Tufts Veterinary School is like it's practically impossible. It's like, it's, it's harder than getting into most medical schools. So uh, the fact that you had pursued that path and got to that point in it is, is quite remarkable in and of itself. Um, so I can understand how you might've been just so, so mission driven that the, uh, the why might've lost its focus. <laughs> like why am correct. I correct? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so you make the shift over. You go over and and get uh, an advanced degree to to pursue science teaching. And so, what leads you into um, is Skyline your first job? Did you get hired right there first, or did you go through other schools? Like, what led you ultimately to having your first couple classroom experiences?
1: Where I student taught in AP Biology, and with a really great uh, master teacher, and. Um, at the end of my student teaching, I was able to take over for another teacher at that same school uh, to finish out the year. And then after that year, I was um, hired by Skyline High School, where I've been ever since. So I've really, really only taught at Skyline, although I do consider that I had a year at one other high school in our area where I was doing student teaching and long-term subbing.
0: Oh, okay. So that's that's a pretty great transition. And you, you went from, uh, you said AP in your... In your... Pre- yeah, your student teaching, and then mm-hmm. um, IB at, at at Skyline, and you know we're talking 2002. So I imagine, I know for a fact that AP Biology today and AP Biology then were totally different. Um, Very different. And and you've been in IB all of this time. Um, so uh, this sort of naturally leads into my next question, but maybe it's even a pre question to it. But like, what it what was it like to be such a young career person starting out teaching, say, IB Biology? Um, early on
1: it was it was both wonderful and a challenge there was very little hesitation by my school administration and my colleagues that I should be teaching IB biology but at the same time as a um, new teacher that's not a place where they often want to put new teachers because (laughs) of the challenge of the content but um I was well supported and worked with a team of people who'd been teaching IB biology who taught me a lot of the ropes and then as they phased out I really took over and it's been all I've been teaching since two
0: thousand and ten. Wow. Well, so uh you know, we I mentioned this a little before we started recording. I you know, I'm sort of steeped in the AP biology world. Um so what are, what are some of the things about, um, you know, the IB curriculum that, that you, you like? What are the aspects of the, the IB approach, or I guess maybe that, that two-year approach um, that, that you enjoy about this curriculum?
1: One of the things I love is there's a real emphasis on the nature of science and understanding how our, how our scientific understanding has developed and changed over time. I also really appreciate that there are two years to kind of delve into topics or areas of passion for the students or myself. There's still way too much curriculum to actually teach within the scope of the course, especially given our school calendar where I live relative to other parts of the world. Uh, but that said, I really feel like it's a very solid, good overview, uh, introductory college-level course curriculum for biology covers all of the full scope and sequence i would expect students to come out with uh but it's there's a lot of it so not <laughs> for sure the downside <laughs> yeah
0: and you are part of the international international baccalaureate biology uh, curriculum review committee and uh if i read things correctly it looks like you are in the in the process of having an updated version of at least the exam coming out in a few years? Is that, is that a fair? Uh,
1: yeah, every, every seven years, the IB organization revamps their uh, biology curriculum and the, and the other sciences. And so I've had multiple iterations of the content of my teaching career. Um, and that's actually one thing I also like is that, you know, it's going to shift and change as understandings shift and change. But there, um, the new curriculum will be out in for first testing in two thousand and twenty-three, and the exams will be changing, and also the uh, really the organization and scope of sequence of the curriculum will be changing too. Um,
0: is, is are the internal assessments and that sort of stuff still going to stay core to what IB does? There will
1: still be an internal assessment, although. Uh, there may be changes to how it can be completed. I can't go into too much detail, oh, yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the internal assessment piece is core to the biology and all of, actually, IB. And so it will be for sure still a, a component of the course. And I actually really love that. I know it's, a, a, it's hard, especially for someone like me who has In in any given years, upwards of 120 to 140 students each completing their own investigation Uh, it's a a logistical nightmare in some regards. But at the same time, the experience the kids get designing and developing and performing and analyzing their own uh, experiments is really uh, valuable for them. And I think a really good testament to uh, what science education should look like.
0: Yeah, a uh, hundred and forty uh, individual experiments to provide feedback on is uh, daunting. <laughs> yeah, it's a
1: it's a beast. We're right in the midst of it now. Over the course of my career, I've gotten better at organizing the logistics of it. I now have um, spread out the design portion and the, the kind of the pre pre data collection phases over the course of a few months, to so going into the data collection phases. I have a good sense of what the students are doing, and then I put them into what I call groups based on what type of data they're going to be collecting and how much need they are going to require of me. So, for example, my first group are groups of kids who are really just performing database analysis or are really able to self-sufficiently collect their data. So they will have an earlier deadline for data collection. Whereas students in group four who require a lot of space or time or uh, materials for me, I give them a lot longer period of time to collect their data. Their deadline isn't for six weeks after group one. So we kind of have this rolling deadline system so that I'm not overwhelmed all at once with 140 reports. That would just be way too much.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like some have to spend more time. Is it on like just the, the design uh, of how to collect data, whereas others the data is just more readily available right off the bat?
1: Yeah, not not so much the design, but the actual data collection process. Some kids, like if they're growing, uh, growing plants and they're, needing more time for that to happen or if they need materials for me that i have to purchase for example we have to use lab grade bacteria mm-hmm. i have to purchase that so just waiting for the bacteria
0: to arrive that kind of thing
1: they, they will get more time to complete their experiments uh, relative to other groups of kids
0: oh, that's that's, that's an interesting way of, of thinking about it I, I, in terms of thinking about how um... You know, we've been playing around with some of these things. We do them in groups, so um, <laughs> in a given class, I will mm-hmm. have I will have six uh, <laughs> labs that I'm working on, right. and they're working in groups of that, uh, just to make it much more manageable. But um, and we we do allow a little bit of flexibility. But I never thought about. Uh, Maybe even flexibility of of deadlines for feedback for students depending on the nature of uh, the type of experiments. But what you're saying is 100% right. Some of my seed, some of my students are using seeds and are doing something where they're growing a plant. Where others are like growing algae or having yeast uh, populations grow, and those are like instantaneous. Like they're they'll have, they'll have data right. in four or five days.
1: Right. A kid who's you know testing liver catalyst reaction rate, they can do that really quick. They can have all their data collected within a few hours. Whereas other kids who need time and materials and they get more time. And I was hesitant at first because I thought there would be pushback by the students around like, hey, how come they get more time? How it's not yeah. fair. But actually the students are super understanding about the tough position I get put in as the deadline looms for submitting the scores for the IA. <laughs> uh, so they really understand like, oh, that makes sense. I'll have a, you know, I, I can get mine done sooner. And they work they are really great kids and they understand and they, they work to the deadlines I give them. It's
0: to that's something I've just gained. So this is like, yep, made this whole conversation a hundred percent worth it. Um, I just picked it up. <laughs> <I> was... <laughs> well, it's, it's shocked me how long it took me to get to that place because for years,
1: everyone just had the same deadline and I would end up overwhelmed, stressed out, uh, actually probably doing a poor job of giving the feedback. Um, uh, predicted scores. And so, you know, finally one day I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Like there needs to be a better way and sure enough,
0: there is. Well, and and similarly, like um when I think about it from the student's perspective, I always have some kids who I probably could be giving them feedback earlier. Like the dilemma is either I could give some feedback to groups earlier and they could make some refinements and then, you know, look things down the line and they could just sort of move on to the next step of the process. I could Correct. do that much earlier. And for other kids, they're stressed out because they're like, well, none of these other groups are doing anything. And I still haven't even collected my data. If I had set it up with a, communicating the understanding to them that that was just the nature of the system that they've picked, then that that would have been a lot less stressful for them as well.
1: Yeah. And with the, the way I have it, chunked out the students have to provide me a a, uh, essentially methodology proposal where I'll just give it a brief overview is it safe do you have the materials are you collecting enough replicates etc and that then is an initial check before they can proceed and I have found that even having that initial check uh, has really clarified a lot of the mis- misunderstandings around how to collect the data that they're doing or how many replicates they need. And I think as anyone who's done science knows, the hardest part is coming up with a problem question. Mm-hmm. And so in the case of the internal assessment, I have 140, 120, 140 kids, each with their own problem questions. So we have to, f- I have to find ways to make sure everyone is doing their own experiment. And so there's a lot of front-loading to make sure everything is done right uh, up front. Now, it is an assessment, so that said, I, I don't actually provide feedback necessarily. I'm just I approve or disapprove, and I allow kids to come talk to me and ask questions, and I provide generic general guidance to everyone. But I don't give guidance really too strictly one-on-one with any individual kid because it is meant to be an assessment of their science skills and understanding.
0: Well, this, I think, is a natural flow into the next thing I want to talk about, which is that you have this very uh, thorough website <laughs> um, with, a, yes. with a lot uh, a lot on there. And I will put the the website. It's com, And I will put a link in my show notes um, for the episode. Um, and one of the things that struck me was, um, you know, not a lot of the things on the website. You you have, you know, information about your classes, and, and I think that's pretty straightforward. But you have this really prominent feature of investigation skills area. Um, and it's, like, it's got a master document that's really, really long, and I totally went down the rabbit hole and started looking through lots of this stuff. But I'm curious, uh, like, sort of two ends, what led you to developing a a section on your website dedicated to investigation skills. And then how does this sort of, how do your students interact with this or how does it roll out through your teaching to have this area that's there?
1: Uh, I started biologyforlife.com when I was student teaching and I needed just a teacher website. And believe it or not, at the time, it was actually very thing for a teacher to have a website. It was -hmm. was, um, the exception, not the norm as it is today. And so over the course of 18, 19 years of developing and modifying and growing biology tribe I've just been adding more and more resources as they needed. The uh, investigation skills piece has been there probably since I started really teaching IB because of the need for the students to understand the, the skills and the analysis. So I have pages dedicated to measurement uncertainty, or a page dedicated to um, calculating uh, descriptive statistics. I have some infer- inferential statistics there. These were just things that I wanted a resource for the kids because I wasn't necessarily spending too much class time teaching it in t- teaching it directly to them. I needed a resource f- to send them to if they needed extra help with it. The the math skills that are required of the students in the IB, uh, they should be coming to IB biology with a general understanding of some descriptive statistics, mean, standard deviation, et cetera. And um, some are getting some infer- inferential statistics in other math or stats classes. But for the most part, I have a really broad range of students who've never even understood really what the mean is. They can calculate it, but they don't really understand what it represents in their data set. So I just needed a place for them to go look, have a resource, and, you know, maybe guide them there first before answering thousands
0: of questions individually. Mm. And so you, it's not, this is a place that's probably more for, you know, the students will... together a proposal and as i'm putting together my proposal as a student i've got to come up with how i'm going to analyze my data this may be an area where i can go and pick up various components of say math skills for example and say oh i'm going to have to compare some data what kind of data is it oh there's this area on inferential statistics which of these tools should i be potentially putting in my proposal does that sound fair
1: That is correct. But also by the time the students are doing the internal assessment, we've used all of these analysis skills in the in the scope of our class. Mm. So it's not the first time they will have ever seen it, but it does serve as a record that they can go trigger a memory and be like, oh, yeah, we did it for this lab. We did this kind of analysis for this kind of problem question. We were comparing. So we did this kind of analysis and it just is there as a reference. Uh, maybe, and to jog their memory, like, oh, yeah, we've done these things.
0: Yeah. And you've got a couple of other interesting things in there. The, one of them that popped up to me, um, having just recently finished giving feedback on a, on a set of, of labs, was uh, the errors in investigation phase that you have, oh, yes. those resources. So uh, I'm sure that I don't click there, and it just doesn't say just human error. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, my favorite is, I didn't have enough time. Oh. And I'm like, well...
0: <laughs> that's your role uh, it's not that we didn't measure it right um i like my other one um well then why then why are you telling me that you drew a conclusion <laughs> so uh yeah uh no i thought i thought it was a uh, fascinating and again you know it's you have your 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 two courses you have a syllabus you have the requirements of ib and then it's like the next thing that's up there investigation skills so it it struck me as um It's a really interesting thing. And I I would say I was struck with both the um, obviousness of some of the instructions uh, for me, because like as a teacher, like, yeah, you would want students to follow directions carefully and not fabricate data. But I also think it's nice to have something where it's explicitly stated, hey, these are the expectations of doing science. Um, and, yeah. and so I, I imagine that it's been an iterative process since you first put this up of you sure. realized, Oh, students know not how to do X. And therefore you, you're like, Oh, I need a thing on safely disposing waste, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh or things like you that. Know,
1: a lot of it, as any teacher knows you, you see what other people are doing and you're like, Oh, that's good. And so I'll add it. So for example, the disposal of waste and the, um, uh, not fabricating data that comes from experience, right? Where kids are fabricating data, I'm like, okay, I need to explicitly say you can't do it. And but also, like our school district's uh, lab safety contract references waste disposal, so it's like, okay, I'd need to make sure to include something about waste disposal. And the new newer iteration of the internal assessment hearing really places a more emphasis on safety and ethics, and so. Uh, disposal of waste, is, it falls within under that. So I think, okay, got to add that, you know, so it's just over time, it grows and changes, I see what the need is and what other people are doing. And I'll just plunk it in there and add it to the site. And as, as you... I try to update a page a day, I have a goal of, <laughs> you know, it's a it's got hundreds of pages biology for life. And so I try to go and review and update at least one page a day to make sure links are working and um, add any new information. And so I'll be coming up here on the um, investigative skills pages here within the next month or so. Now I'm curious as I get to if I have to make any
0: edits or changes. Wow. Yeah. And I I was also thinking back to what you said is that you, you use these also, within the scope of your course. So uh, I imagine oh, yeah. that that this is both something where you're in the course, you're probably referencing similar materials both when you teach in within the the yeah. IB course themselves, and then you're duplicating some resources so that they're they're in sort of a stationary place forever um, under investigation skills, but they may also come up you know as a, a link that you would provide for students as you're going.
1: Correct. For example, in the first year class, they just finished um, learning about cell cycle control and development of cancer. Mm-hmm. And so they had to go to a national database and get cancer statistics incidents by age for a, they got to pick what kind of cancer they wanted and then perform a correlation. What is the correlation between incidence of your selected cancer with uh, age of the individual's? and then perform actually a Pearson's correlation, determine if it was significant or not. And there was no guidance around how to perform a correlation. That was something we had already done in class. And so I was like, okay, we've already done this. You know where the materials to help yourself review. If you need help, here's the formulas, here's the uh, Excel uh, formulas, or if you're using sheets, here's how you do it. And They just go. They know where to access it and how to help themselves.
0: Yeah. I think it's uh, for anybody who who has a website, and I'm sure probably more people are like me than like you, I've had multiple iterations of websites (laughs) over the past 20 years. um, And I guess there's a little tinge of jealousy as I look at this because I feel like in the process right now, we were on one learning management system for a long time. Uh, It was one that the school sort of stopped supporting like five yep. or six years ago yep. but it's where we had put all of our stuff first yes
1: no i own biology for life yeah <laughs> and so i like, i have to pay for the domain registration and the hosting but for me the few hundred dollars i spend a year to to have that website and not have to worry about the various management and website systems the school is using i i i do have Official pages through my school learning management system and their <laughs> websites. But basically, they all say, here's the real page to go visit. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and so, like, for me, like, I, I'm i in the midst of this over the last couple of years, like, limbo system where I've got a Google classroom and we're building new Google websites that replace our old learning management system and we're doing all that. Um, but right now I'm in this very much of a limbo where there are things that I used to always direct my students to, and that's not a site we really use. So like, as we approach a new unit, I'm like, all right, what are all the things I need to make sure are over here? And what are all yep. the things I need to pull? So not only am I like, you know, creating the new resources that I create because I'm a glutton for punishment and I rewrite large swaths of my yep. curriculum all the time, but, yep. um, but I also am in the process of trying to migrate this. And every time I come across a website like yours, I'm like, I, I, I think back to the, the choice points I've had <laughs> the last 20 years yep. of do, almost doing what you did here and not doing it and just staying within the school system. Um, and then like this year in particular, I've been sort of kicking myself a little bit on it. Like ugh, I just wish I had this one place. Um, is this, yep. is this I've website
1: i've I've gone through two other major iterations where I've changed to host the website and that requires a full redesign and a full rebuild. Uh huh. Um, and that takes hours, months of the summer, yeah,, uh, but in general, now I've fully integrated all my files and all of my hosting. And so now, even if I make minor changes, it will it will change everything throughout the whole system of the website, which is really a huge benefit. yeah, one thing I wanted to say was we were talking about how my kids, my students use it as a resource. You would be surprised though, like how many of them still their in their instinct is just to go search Google for the, the way to do something. And I'll be like, Okay, remember, there's a tool for you that I've put together that like really narrows the scope of what exactly you need to do. And they're like, Oh yeah, oh yeah. So the you know, it's there, but I still have to remind the kids, like, you guys, Google might not be your number one go to source for everything <laughs> you need for this class. Yeah.
0: No, now you have to make a you have to make a TikTok video that shows. Uh... Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> we do a lot of dancing in my class. We have a curriculum where we where we add dance moves to the to the ongoing kind of sequence of of dancing, <laughs> and the students are really into putting our dance onto TikTok. It's pretty
0: cute. <laughs> I am. As, as a person who spends time with uh, teenage humans on a regular basis, I am not surprised at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the other question is you're about, we t- you know, you mentioned your students, but how about like uh, other teachers? I mean, you teach with other IB teachers and you definitely have a leadership sort of role, particularly within Washington State. But I imagine a much broader community of IB teachers. Do you have other people accessing uh, the, the information here or, or talking to you about stuff that's up here?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I would say I get one to two emails a day from IB biology teach unsolicited just <laughs> emails uh, from IB bio teachers and or students um, around the world who are using it, have a question, need advice or want clarification on something. And it's actually uh, for a, a very long time, I was the only person in our school district who was teaching IB biology. Our program has grown now, so we have a couple other teachers at our school who are uh, co-teaching it with me, but for the longest time it was just me, and so I use the website as kind of a tool for building community, and that's actually been a really great benefit of the Twitter too is being out there and being able to connect with other IB Bio teachers who, you know, it's a global curriculum, so from all parts of the planet, all kind of moving through this beast of curriculum together, and and it's been a real great community building
0: tool. Yeah, and I, I imagine for younger teachers, um, you mentioned students, but also I would imagine if you're a young teacher, <laughs> you're in, new to IB, and you're somebody who's sort of in your shoes from you know two thousand, you know two two thousand three, and but it's today, and you're looking out for resources online, and you come across your website. Uh, it's a it's an amazing resource.
1: Yep, I have everything. I do. I I post it all, all my presentations, all the note templates, all the links everything I have is accessible and just there for anyone who wants to use it.
0: Nice. Yeah. And I also appreciate the, uh, and this is, you know, a tough conversation for people like the, you know, just posting all your stuff free for people to use. Um, And I, I understand that there are places where teachers are less resourced and they build their curriculum and they may not have a great rapport with their districts and they want to put stuff behind teachers, pay teachers. But I have a hard time personally with that. That's like, it just, that's against my sort of individual philosophy. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I, I try to be respectful of understanding that I'm in a very privileged situation where I teach. Um, but I'm happy to see other teachers doing sort of along with my philosophy of yeah, uh, everything I have, I want everyone to be able to see it. And if it's good, please use it. And if it's not good, please tell me. Um, That's sort of my own. Pick and choose
1: what you want. Let me know if there's mistakes or something I can improve. And I'm happy to put it out there. A lot of it is for the exact same reason what you said is that I also am fortunate to teach in a school district and in a community that is, is well resourced. And I feel like, you know, and I've, I love teaching, and so if I can make something that makes it easier for kids in other situations or teachers in other situations to like make, make their job any bit easier, then I want to
0: do what I can. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, I want to shift gears away from classroom to the year you spent uh, away from your classroom. (laughs) Um, And as I mentioned and alluded to earlier, um, during 2017 and 2018, one of the teachers from my school, uh, Mike Romano, was also uh, an Einstein fellow and was down in D.C. and left the school. Um, And so uh, how did your experience of a year as an Einstein fellow Uh, impact you? I mean, you spent a year outside your classroom. You've now been back for a year and a half, but um, maybe tell me a little bit about what the experience was like and then what it's like to transition back into your school.
1: Okay. Well, I have um, um, applied to be an Einstein fellow and was sure to work very closely with my school district to make sure that if I was selected, that I would be able to return back to my job. I absolutely love my job and the teaching that I, the teaching load that I have at all IB biology, and I didn't want to risk that. So before I left, I was sure to work with my um, district superintendents and principal to make sure that I wasn't risking, you know, my position in the school or in the school district if I had left for a year. My school and school district were super supportive. They've always been really supportive of me and professional development opportunities I've had. And so I was able to take a one-year leave of absence, and uh, my family, my son and husband and I and our two cats, trucked (laughs) from Washington State all the way to Washington, D.C., where we spent one year. I was an Einstein Fellow at the Department of Energy Office of Science, Um, And I was responsible for assisting with the National Science School and also for working with other STEM, national and federal STEM education programs. It was a really uh, perfect time for me to go. At the time, I'd been teaching for 16 years and was, uh, I wouldn't say burning out, but was eager for a new challenge. And so the year away from the classroom both reinvigorated my um kind of sense of learning and professional growth but also it really really reinforced to me that i love classroom teaching and i am comfortable and confident that classroom teaching is where i'm supposed to be Hmm. Uh, and so for me it was really a a reinforcing of of okay I made the right decision 18 years ago when i decided to be a teacher <laughs> i'm i'm still here and i still love it and i still feel like i make the best impact in a group of in a classroom situation with a group of kids so for me it was really um reinforcing of the, the life path i had chosen which was really a wonderful experience
0: mm-hmm. And so, so you, you, you've come back and do you feel like that it did? It was there like a, like a learning curve or a, oh, yeah, that's, this is, these are the things that, that are involved in the job. Were there any sort of like, uh, I don't want to say they're shocks because you, you were not a, a new teacher, but things that were maybe more challenging to like reacquaint yourself with it or was it a really easy transition back?
1: It was so easy. <laughs> oh, good. I was, I loved being back and I felt, energized and I was eager and enthusiastic to be back in the classroom. And that's kind of a special thing coming back to um seventeen years back into a classroom, I was like, okay, this is really great. I'm excited to be here. So it was really reinforcing. That said, I did learn a lot during the fellowship. And one of the things I learned is that I might have a I I don't know because i've only ever had my own personal experience but i think i have a really unique situation in which i am really supported for the work i do by my school and school district there's a lot of autonomy i don't i am not micromanaged mm-hmm. and i so i think that that is part of the reason why i love classroom teaching so much because uh, as i was spending the year visiting other classrooms and mm-hmm talking with many different science and math teachers from different parts of the nation, I realized, like, there's a lot of teachers who aren't given the professionalism that they need and deserve, and as a result, they leave the profession or find dissatisfaction with it. And I was awakened to how unique of a situation I am in and very grateful for that situation.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to hear you express that because um, I would say in my school, there's a an undercurrent of sort of frustration, I think, sometimes that, um, you know, about sort of how the decision making process goes or that things are, are slow or things may seem like sort of big district level decisions um there's, I think, just frustration with them because they're trying to manage a building of 2,000 of you know students, along with you know over 100 teachers, and you can never make everybody happy, and um, and decision making seems to sometimes take forever. But at the same time, we are not micromanaged. We have enormous autonomy, and those two right. things go together. Like, yeah. if you have like so many administrators that they have the they like they have not enough on their plate, they can micromanage your curriculum down to. Nothing like where you don't have that decision, whereas we are understaffed at the administrative level Um, badly uh, to the point where the people we have are very good, but like their jobs are impossible. They have like we should we should have like three or four more administrators than we have in our building. And that's sometimes a point of frustration. But on the flip side, like really, you kind of is, you know, you're, you're beholden to a community that expects excellence. And that's where the vetting comes from. Your colleagues expect you to be excellent. Your colleagues expect you to produce good work. Your students expect good work. Their parents expect good work. And so you're beholden to the community who you serve, but you do not have a assistant principal, a dean, a, a, a department head, like, walking into your room saying, um, I see that you ran a really engaging lesson, but you didn't write the daily learning objectives up on the board. Right, right, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, like, <laughs> those those words are never spoken, like, in my lifetime. Like, that's just not yeah. a thing. So, like, it's interesting to have you get that perspective going there. I mean, I, again, I, I didn't leave my classroom for a year. I just have dedicated four years to interviewing teachers over around the country that sometimes the things I hear happening in schools is kind of baffling, like like correct. Wh- like why why do they teach? why why would you treat a teacher that way? Um, yeah. So, yeah yeah, that's
1: yeah, it sounds like we teach in a very similar kind of situation where the or the community and the students have high expectations of themselves and of the teachers. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked at how different places the require of the teachers and the micromanaging and, and it, it made me not surprised to understand the uh, lack of retention rates within the teaching profession it's like well yeah anyone who's subject to this kind of micromanaging or these kinds of ridiculous expectations would also want to leave the profession
0: Yeah. And yeah. And also, I mean, like, as I'm sure you would say, what I do and as our conversation (laughs) earlier, what we do is hard (laughs) and exhausting. So it's hard and exhausting when you're in a great scenario um, and requires massive uh, intellectual curiosity and drive and desire to stay on top of it. And if you are then micromanaged on top of that, uh, then that's, it's just tough. I I, I understand the lack of retention from that perspective. Um, I I wouldn't want to be micromanaged. (laughs) Right, Uh, right. And I'm also sure that, and I and I have seen this in other districts that are similar, what ends up happening, at least in schools like mine, and, and I don't see it a ton where I am, but I actually went to a school very similar. Um, what ends up happening is the the veteran teachers um, also sort of become cult of personality a little bit. Um And so if people are going to pick battles with teachers, they're not going to pick the battles with the 20-year veterans. They're going to pick battles with teachers in their first five years that they have a little bit more of a sense of control in. So even in schools where, generally speaking, the teachers have a lot of autonomy, I don't know that young teachers always get to have that privilege. So.
1: that is a really fascinating—I had never thought about that, and now it makes me wonder— if I'm just oblivious to what's actually going on, <laughs> I don't think so. But but it is that is an interesting perspective where it's like maybe it is happening, but they're just not doing it to me.
0: Well, and I could just say that like even though I, we teach in a great school, you know, I was with Michael um, in my school, and 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 sounds like your school is very similar. Uh, we still have young teacher turnover. Like in some mm-hmm. departments in our building, you know, we we still are having. You know, teachers who are not making it through those first five years. And so clearly the experience that I'm having where I feel a lot of autonomy and and that sort of thing, I think it's got to be something more than just the job itself, which is really hard. And maybe it's just that's it. Maybe the job is just brutally hard and not everybody's cut out for it. Some people try it. And if you stick through five years, you probably are have the skill yeah. set and desire and you want to make it. Um yeah. With that said, I, I feel like more teachers leave after the first year or two than than balances out with that. Um, so it makes me wonder if the the community and the administrative you know control on being a young teacher is maybe just tougher. Um, And I certainly know that when I was when I was looking for a job early on and I went back to my high school, one of my former teachers and a former coach of mine told me not to become a young teacher in that building. And he said he said that new teachers get eaten alive here. That was his exact (laughs) phrasing. And when I thought back of it, there were no young teachers in that building. They just weren't like there were a couple of positions that were just like year or two turnover, year or two turnover, year or two turnover, and then everybody else was like a 20-year veteran who was like a lion in that building that, you know, was untouchable. Mm. Um, so.
1: I don't think that happens in so much in my school or my district. We, they've really tried recently within the last 5 this five, years to focus on teacher retention, especially during those first few induction years. And so now, there. I think there's an understanding, and I hope it's communicated with the new teachers that this is a really challenging job, and we don't expect everyone within their first one, two, three years to be uh, perfect at it. No one ever is. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. You can't do it all every day, all the time. And the, the school district I work for is. Tr- I feel like trying to make an effort to have people understand that if you're in this for the long haul you have to have a lot of self-care you have to not not overwork yourself and so I feel like there's been a a conscience effort on the part of my school and my school district to really support beginning career teachers as they kind of enter the field it's self-serving for the school district obviously (laughs) yeah they don't have to hire new people or if they treat their young professionals well and so I think it's a it's a win-win situation.
0: Yeah, I would say where I am is better now than it was five to seven years ago. Um, I mm-hmm. would, I would, I would label it if I was, uh, you know, marking them on an end-of-year evaluation. I would say it's still an area of potential growth uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for where we are, because I think that the language of self-care for faculty in general, and this is not young faculty versus old faculty, new faculty, mm-hmm. that I think. Um, the the taking care of yourself and balance is not something we as a faculty do particularly well. I think it's mm-hmm. also baked into the sort of driven culture of our building. We have a very driven culture and it's everybody. Everybody's like trying to do their best all the time. And trying to do your best all the time is not always healthy. <laughs> so Correct. And so, so the, the concept of downtime is something that uh, is something we probably should have better conversations. And, you know, the the concept of balance is, is tough. Um, I think yep. I can just only speak for myself personally. Um, I am somebody who is kind of go, 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 go all the time. But I also try to be conscious of... How I project that to other people, like I I would say 20 years ago when I got labs, it was like, turn them out, get them back, give feedback right away. And now when I finish grading something, my immediate thought is, I wonder how long it's going to take my colleagues to get these things back. I don't want to put them in a position where they feel behind Uh, um, on this stuff. Or if I do hand it back, I try to frame it around, oh, I only have one section of this. You guys are not going to get X done until a little bit longer. I prioritize this. The other teacher is going to prioritize this. Like, I, especially when I'm working with younger colleagues who, you know, if you, if I hand something back, students in another room are like, well, why didn't we get our labs back? Today?
1: Why didn't we get it?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a conversation mm-hmm. that I have become aware of. And I don't think it's something that we do. Um, it's, it's, again, something we're becoming better at getting to um, and it's only through that experience of seeing how other people come into our our school and culture and you know what, what they what they reflect back to us um, on on so maybe the insanity of our pacing sometimes <laughs> yeah so yeah. all right so uh, we've talked a lot about sort of your background what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the the next couple of years
1: Well, I have the really wonderful experience right now of having my son at as a freshman at the school where i teach so by just on a total personal level i am so looking forward to spending the next uh, now three and a half years with him in the building it's been really great to just see his experience as a freshman in our school he's a he i tell him all the time how he has improved my teaching more than any other experience Mm -hmm. having a child has forced me to realize that how just the, 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 the stories behind the faces in the classroom and how they all have various experiences and various uh, aptitudes and, and approaches to learning, it has shifted how I communicate with families. It's just been the best thing for my teaching career. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to having him in the building. I don't know if he'll end up ever taking IB biology, but <laughs> if he does, that'd be fun too. Uh, so but beyond that i don't I don't know i I, I for sure will be in the classroom uh, for his time at the school and into the new iteration of the Ivy biology curriculum. and then beyond that, I don't know if something else comes up, I could be game, but honestly, I just love classroom teaching so much I can't imagine doing anything else.
0: Yeah, and you also have ongoing like work that you're doing. As you said, you're working on that IB curriculum. You've got your website that you're constantly, you know, iterating on. So it, you have a handful of sort of longer term projects that you sort of continue to curate. Correct. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. And one thing, Washington State, we have what's called the Washington Teacher Advisory Council, and this is a council of uh, award-winning educators, uh, teachers of the years, and presidential award winner and teachers. And we're really trying to get this uh, group kind of we're in, the, we're in the building stages of creating this consortium of teachers. And so I've been doing some work with this group and um, trying to connect with Washington State policymakers and Washington State um, superintendent uh, decision makers to have us be a resource for, for their needs or even just as a sounding board for ideas. And so that's another area where I've been finding I have opportunity to kind of stretch my legs and challenge myself is trying to grow this group also.
0: Yeah, I saw that on your uh, on your CV a little bit, Man, that's a that's a great that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, it makes me curious what what we have in Massachusetts. <laughs> it's
1: it, it's a great idea, but it's hard to get ideas off the off often self-sufficient and running. So we're still trying to
0: get name recognition and have people recognize
1: that we exist and who we are. So
0: yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I'm going to ask the question that you laughed at when I said it before we recorded, but uh, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? <laughs> uh,
1: when you were saying just a few minutes ago, you were saying how you're very productive and you said you were go, go, go kind of person. I was yeah. in my head. I was like, that's so relatable because that's very much who I am. I'm very list driven, task oriented. And um, so I was thinking like, what actually do I do? And my husband teases me that I don't have any hobbies because teaching is my hobby. I do spend quite a lot of time uh, by choice, not by, not by requirement by choice because I enjoy it. I spend a lot of time uh, learning about biology. I spend a lot of time, uh, so that would be like reading books, hearing uh, journals, watching videos or TED Talks about biology. Um, I <laughs> I also uh, probably spend equal amount of time reading books and uh, magazines and watching videos about instruction and pedagogy. So those would be my two kind of interests, but it just sounds so dorky. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As, as somebody, it's so true. I, yeah. as somebody whose hobby is interviewing other biology teachers, I yes, okay. I, I will cast no <laughs> stones, no stones whatsoever will be thrown from me. Um, yeah. No, my wife kind of jokingly is the other way. She says that I have like 10,000 hobbies, but I have no time for any of them. Um, yes. OK. But uh, yeah, a lot of them are, you know, very similar. Like I have a lot of like I have a lot of things I'm curious about. Is, there, is a, I'm like a very just sort of curious driven person. Um, I think that's, that's Uh it. And so when I, you know, it's one of those things I think about in terms of like what I know about um, learning and how I know what student, the way students learn, but how I've discovered how I learn um, particularly the last few years. Um, I am not, I'm not a teenager. I don't need to necessarily chunk things out the same way maybe a teenager does. Um, I like Mm -hmm. to get into sort of flow state. So I like to dive into something and spend like, four hours and the next thing i know it's like 11 30 and it's like oh i was supposed to be in bed like uh right <laughs> um and right. so i find that i go down into like rabbit holes of things that are curious for me um and that's that's very it's engaging it's fun um but you're right a lot of them have to do with like what i do as my j to j job as well so it's right. uh yeah learning a lot about biology is serving both my own individual curiosity but also is serving the work that i do so yeah.
1: I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I don't do anything else. I do have other hobbies, uh, but, but in general, it's, I have, I'm a, I'm a, a consumer of learning. And so I like to, I like to do as much as I can. My, my, um, my mission for this summer, if I can, is to hike the John Muir trail. And so I would consider myself a, a, backpacker although not a fanatic backpacker so we're going to try to go Uh, my husband and I had an attempt a few years ago where we got 110 miles done had to leave to go to Washington (laughs) DC to meet the president uh but uh uh, (laughs) but so this year we're going to try to get out and complete the full 220 plus mile trek through the through the Sierra of California so that's our mission
0: Wow. Yep. Wow. That's a lot of, that's a long hike. <laughs> it is a long
1: hike. It's very, um, it's very mind clearing and reminding about uh, a human's place in the, in the systems of nature. And it's really uh, a good challenge, wow. physical and mental.
0: All right. Well, before we get to uh picks of the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me?
1: I'm just really curious, you asked me about um about the uh, the investigative skills and the 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 idea of branching and chunking and you said your students do it in group is this do your your inquiry in groups is this for summative projects or do you do that kind of thing in Unit by unit basis where there's kind of an inquiry task built into each of your units of study.
0: Yeah. So uh, it's a little different in my. So we teach an honors biology, which is a very pre AP biology type course. Mm -hmm. And then we. Nine. uh, Mostly nine. It's a mix of ninth Mm -hmm. and 10th. And then Mm -hmm. I teach an AP course, which is a mixer of juniors and seniors um, in Mm -hmm. our school. We do not have a single entry system. So um, some students enter and take honors bio as freshmen. Some students come in and take an earth science and then take honors bio as sophomores. So our honors Mm -hmm. bio is mixed. Um, So we do both uh, a handful and by a handful, I mean four Uh, throughout the year, one each quarter, um, like claim evidence reasoning labs that are done in groups where we will show them a simple baseline experiment um, uh, and then we'll collect some data and then I will ask the students to develop a follow-up question within their group. And I sort of walk them through experimental design in there and then they will end up like writing up, you know, making a, a CER at the end result of that. And so that's sort of like, I would call that fairly structured or guided inquiry um, Mm -hmm. that's in there. And then on top of that honors curriculum, we run an arc that goes through uh, sort of science practices and skills that run throughout the beginning, the year from the beginning to the end. And so in the beginning they do a term project where they go out to conservation areas in our, our area. And the idea is they uh, make a handful of observations and they, um, uh, and they ask a whole bunch of questions. Ideally, they generate questions that they're curious about in there and they make some connections to some ecological pheno- phenomena that exist there and then ultimately come up with a way of modeling some component of that ecosystem. So the first mm-hmm. couple of the NGSS sort of science practices. Mm-hmm. And then in quarter two, we give them sort of a uh, the best way I could think of it is sort of like uh, the Great British British Baking Show's Technical Challenge. Uh, we give them a set of instructions uh, for how to run a simple experiment on something that might relate to one of the big concepts from ecology in quarter one. But we don't really tell them how to do it. We say, you know, kind of like get some algae and grow it up and add some fertilizer. And like we really give them, you know, we give them videos and some broad instructions and some ways of collecting data on that. But we give them a lot of leeway. And then we give them groups, and they sort of have to figure out how to collect data on that. Mm-hmm. And so that's quarter two. And then quarter three, we open the inquiry box a little bit more. Now that they've sort of built the skill of asking some questions and building models and looking at models a little bit and phenomenon connecting to models, and then they figure out how to actually conduct an experiment safely and generate data that's sort of consistent with the hypothesis and model they were looking at, then they can ask a more open ended question in quarter three. That that is a little bit messier and so they'll play around with it. So our first our or two things are like super simple like how does fertilizer impact the, the growth of algae like that's that's very simple or like how does pH affect seed germination or uh, those type of things like how does the type of mm-hmm. carbohydrate type of carbohydrate uh, impact. Uh, like fermentation and yeast, those type of experiments, mm-hmm. um, and then when they move into core three, hopefully they're now asking a little bit more robust questions. And so the idea, and then core four, we hopefully will get them to then expand back outside of the classroom. Uh, that's a project that needs to still be written because um, <laughs> it's changed. you're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not there yet, and uh, we've been talking about making it something where they go back out and then do some sort of ideally some sort of citizen science type data collection um with a oh, there's a lot of great out there's a lot of great yeah. stuff out there oh i've got files um <laughs> yeah uh, and we're working on a large curriculum team and we're doing other curriculum stuff but the idea would be then um that also has a, a science communication component to it something that they would go <laughs> out and get some sort of data do some data analysis of something that's within the ecosystem locally and you're right there's a lot of data sets that exist there's a lot of simple ways that they could collect some local data as well um and then do some sort of communication piece that's added on so that's that's where we're going with that and really what that does is it's an overarching project that lays on top of the curriculum that hopefully has a through line of local ecology and Mm -hmm. the science practices that go in there Um,
1: place based
0: yeah that's cool and then Is this um in, yeah, is
1: this unique to the honors class, or do the general level classes do it also?
0: So at the moment, the way we've shifted, this is now strictly an honors arc. Um, it's mm-hmm. fairly new. In the past, some of the projects that we did on honors were occurred in other um, in other levels as well. Um, but at the moment, uh, sort of in the middle of where we are transitioning project wise and curriculum wise at the different levels this is something that is this is actually probably the biggest differentiation between our non-honors and our honors level curriculum is this project component that layers on top Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the biggest difference there a lot of these same practices are done within the other levels just not as this like extra on top of the curriculum type thing that students are doing. And there's lots of conversations about what is our curriculum look like. We've just done a fairly heavy revision to the scope and sequence in our school. And so like we're now in the middle of sort of this first round through of what is a significant Revision, and mm-hmm. I think we sort of need to stop and take stock of where we are. Yep. I think and learn from it. Yeah, and I think there was a little hesitance, um, understandably, from our our other general bio levels of doing something on this level, um, and it, it is a, a pretty big time commitment too. So, uh, at the moment, it's not. Um, and then in the AP curriculum. Uh, I do a lot of we do multiple iterations of uh, here's a baseline lab, you design a follow up investigation Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, And then I actually have them write up once a quarter uh, collaboratively write up um, basically a journal article um, following the Journal of Emerging Investigators um, submission guidelines. Mm -hmm. and what's nice about that is that in term four their labs are really independently developed based off of the skills they do in the last few years and i'm currently working actually with two different groups who finished last year two groups of juniors who are now in their senior year who have papers in process to submit to to jei for publication so um it's a different way of going but uh it it's and it's optional like it's this is something i was meeting with them earlier this week with one of my groups um taking the the reviewers feedback and turning that into journal and it's a really cool experience but again it's not for great it's just that's an opportunity that they're uh, they're accessing when they're done yeah that's awesome (laughs) so yeah trying to do good science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, we have come to pics of the episode, and because of a uh, snafu, I'm going to call it on my part, of, of sharing documents. I don't know what you have to share, Gretel, aside from, I mean, you've got a million ideas, so do you have any uh, pics to share, uh, resources that might be interesting for people to, to check out that you've come across lately, either in science or in education?
1: Oh, sure. One, one thing that, as an Einstein fellow, I had the opportunity to do was spend a week at the Library of Congress doing a professional development about the use of primary resource documents um, in the classroom. And the group I was with, I was the only science teacher is primarily um, history and English teachers. And so it was fascinating to learn from those disciplines about how they approach the use of primary documents. And I would like to... uh, tell all of your listeners and anyone who's interested that the Library of Congress has a
0: huge
1: uh, collection, all publicly available through the internet, of imagery and articles and newspaper printings that are excellent at showing our understanding of science over time. And uh, one thing I did was I built a lesson around uh, our, our kind of the rule of government and industry and science in uh, the smoking and correlation with lung cancer. And so I used the Library of Congress collection to grab some imagery that shows how smoking has changed, the the kind of public-facing marketing and science around uh, smoking has changed over the last 100 years. And that was just one project, but they have a slew of resources that can really provide a, a human face to the stories of science that we are teaching our students. They have things about antibiotics, if you're teaching resistance, they have um, great materials that show um, discoveries, histor- we, we think of as historical discoveries, they have newspaper articles uh, of the day showing how the discovery was, was presented at the time. So it's a really great resource for any and all teachers out there to go explore. It's one of those things where you mentioned you can get into a wormhole in a flow state. <laughs> for sure you can do that at the Library of Congress. They have so many resources and materials. Yeah. would 10 out of 10 recommend.
0: Yeah, it looks like there's a, if you go to library of Congress, uh, loc.gov for Library of Congress, mm-hmm. there is a, a, a teachers and classroom materials Website um, that is available right they there. They have a
1: bunch of pre-designed lessons and um, ideas for how to get students examining artific- art artifacts. And um, but then there, there's also just the full library collection. So it's just really a great resource for everyone.
0: All right, neat. Yeah, definitely. It says how, there's a how to use primary source articles thing right here too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, neat. I will put a link of that on the show notes. All right. Mine is mine's very different. um, But it's uh, it's I I often think in terms of like like interesting hooks or phenomena. And um, my colleague came up with something this year that was new. Uh, We were wanted to do something a little bit different with like uh, symbiosis in general. And so we were looking at putting together a unit which talks about like how do microbes influence their hosts. Um, mm. And he found this really interesting uh, journal article that came in eLife uh, that's called Robust Manipulation of the Behavior of Drosophila Melanogastar uh, by a Fungal Pathogen in the Laboratory. Um, it's, out of, cool. it's out of a Harvard thing. And there's actually I, I put a link to both the original primary source article and also a New York Times article. But basically, it's a fungus that turns fruit flies into like these climbing zombies Um, and the reason that they climb is so that they can get really high up above the population and then as the fungal spores burst out they will rain down on Ah, the community Um, and so what happens is they hijack the fruit flies and make them climbers but nothing yes. else. And then when they climb to the top, they secrete uh, something out of their mouth that makes it that sticky and they actually stick their mouth to the top of the thing they've climbed, climbed to and then they freeze there.
1: Oh, and... so weird. so <laughs> cool and weird. There's a very famous David Attenborough clip yeah. of a cortic- corticus, I can't remember the name of the fungus. Uh, the, doing that with an ant.
0: Yep, it's, exa- it's the exact yep. same yep. thing. Uh, we showed that same ant video in class too. Uh, but it's yep. like, you know, we talk about like symbionts and how symbionts work. And again, we were doing this in AP. So it talked all about signal transduction pathways and oh, like cool. how could you, how could a parasite control a host? Like what would it be doing? And so we led them through some of this. And the videos are really pretty cool. And we did show the Attenborough video, but we also looked at sort of the concept of materials and methods. Like how would you, like, how would you demonstrate this through data that this is what's happening? Like, it's one thing to make a claim that like, these fungi are taking over this. Well, how would you show this? And so looking at the article, uh, the article from eLife is also eLife's like one of those online journals. So there's actually videos mm-hmm. embedded within it, too. So very, cool. very cool source. Um, I will put that in there. I will also put in the Library of Congress link for you. you
1: want your, your case study there is a perfect illustration of exactly why I love biology so much is that you can connect these what would appear like disparate parts cell signaling pathways to ecology and whole that is so cool about our our field of study is everything is all connected and it's a um, it's a fun challenge for kids to try to see how all these levels of organizations and I, different ideas can try to
0: connect to each other. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. Alright, well thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, as I often say, I hope you forgot that I was recording this the whole time. Um. <laughs> Alright, let me give my show credits before we sign off. Uh, please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, it should be on anything that you plan to, to listen to podcasts on. You should be able to find it. If not, please let me know. You can uh, also go to patreon.com slash lots to uh, get examples of my show notes. You can also uh, chip in a few bucks to help offset the cost of hosting websites and so forth. Um, also, I post up my episodes a day or two early for my Patreons. Uh, music on this and every episode are provided by Jake Jenk Jenkins and Ex-Magicians. Uh, you can also get show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Tweets or at Life of the School, and you can follow Gretel on Twitter at VB underscore IBBio or on Instagram at Teacher. I do not have an Instagram. I got to think about that. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining me and I'll talk to you soon.